You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Thanks, Merrily, for that song selection. It's been a a difficult week and a tough morning. I apologise in advance if there's any connection issues, any audio connections uh, issues or anything like that because uh, I've had nothing but strife with our usually reliable internet connection here this morning and I've struggled all morning to get it working again. So I apologise in advance, but he, that song selection merrily was exactly what I needed to calm my soul after a tough week and a tough morning. So... Um, Praise be to God, and praise be to God's people who are so sensitive to hear what we need. Uh, as I said, it's been a tough week, and uh, those of you who have watched TV this week would be well aware of what's been happening in Melbourne and uh, how challenging that has been. Now, I've rarely waded into politics or social issues or the COVID crisis from the pulpit, there's a couple of reasons for that, and firstly and most importantly, my calling is not to preach politics, but to preach Christ and him crucified. But it's not that politics and other matters are unimportant, they are, they are important. They affect our everyday lives, and I take the privilege and the responsibility to vote very seriously. But in spite of that, there's a second reason why I rarely address current events, and that's because nothing of this world has eternal value. Only Christ has eternal value. Nothing that any political party decides will ultimately have eternal impact. But Christ does, and Christ will. And so my goal every week is to direct your thoughts, your vision, and your heart back to Jesus Christ. Because it's so easy to be distracted by what we see going on in the world around us. So as I said, you've no doubt all watched the footage of the protests in the heart of our city about the mandatory vaccinations that uh, have been imposed on the construction industry. And I'm in that industry myself. I wonder what you felt when you watched it. Did you cheer when you saw people gathering in large crowds to defy the government and the police? Maybe you're angry at the protesters, either for the simple act of disobedience and gathering publicly or for senseless acts of aggression like assaulting the TV reporter and throwing urine all over him. Maybe you're angry at the police for their show of force, their heavy-handedness. A huge number of police in riot gear and armed with batons and rifles loaded with rubber bullets. Maybe you don't care one way or another. You're happy in your lockdown bubble, so it doesn't really affect you. I hope, perhaps that you were grieved by what you saw. That was my initial reaction. It brought tears to my eyes that in this great and peaceful nation of ours, in this wonderful city of Melbourne, that our society has come to this. A friend last week asked, my, asked for my thoughts on a recent news report that many Sydney church leaders were pushing back against the government's plans to require proof of vaccination for anyone who wants to attend a church service in person. The title of the article, which was published in the Sydney Morning Herald, was Stand Up and Say No, Churches Fight Government Over Vaccine Mandate. 
and the opening paragraphs of the article read, Health Minister Brad Hazard is standing firm behind plans to require churchgoers to show proof of vaccination when New South Wales reopens. Despite religious leaders pushing for an exemption on the grounds that no one should be turned away from church. Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, Kanishka Raphael, and other faith leaders are lobbying Mr Hazard directly on the issue, and some ministers have publicly contemplated civil disobedience if these uh, requirements go through. Reading some more of the article, one church minister is quoted as saying, even if it is consistent and churches are treated the same as cinemas, I still question whether the government has the right to impose on churches something that we don't accept, he said. There might come a time, like with a vaccine passport for me, where I would say the government requires that, but we're now going to stand up and say no, even though it's consistent with what they're requiring for cinemas and so forth. End quote. On the face of it, the government's requirements would seem outrageous. How dare they tell us who can and can't worship? They're clearly stepping beyond the bounds of their authority by prohibiting something that God demands of us, aren't they? So anyway, that's the background to what stirred this message today. I began to craft my response to my friend and quickly realised there's a much bigger picture here that we need to look at. The question is not just, does the government have the right to limit gathered worship to only a select group of people, in this instance, the vaccinated? Rather, the bigger question is, what are the limits of governmental authority in matters that impact the church? And that's a much weightier question. Just where is the line in the sand that we as Christians cannot cross? How do we determine when it's acceptable and even required of us to disobey the government's demands? And how do we decide then what, what is a fitting and appropriate response? One author writes, The current argument for civil disobedience runs something like this. The Bible commands us to gather for worship. The government currently forbids us to gather for worship. The authority of God is greater than the authority of the government. Therefore, we must obey God rather than men. So if we've decided that we should defy the government, how do we justify it biblically? Now, these are not easy questions to answer, I've got to tell you. We've witnessed plenty of proof testing, texting and sloganeering around COVID in particular, but none of it helps us to arrive at biblical conclusions and godly responses. Rather, they only ensure that the two sides of the debate become more firmly entrenched in their positions and thus more deaf, deaf to contrary reasoning and arguments. If we have any hope of healing these relational wounds, we need help from beyond. We need help from beyond human wisdom and reasoning. My hope is that if we can determine what the Bible has to say about God's expectation of obedience to our rulers, balanced against the always greater requirement to obey him, then we'll have some principles that we can apply not just to the COVID situation, but to any situation. And I hope also that we can begin to understand why godly friends choose to take a different path to us. If we can do that, then we'll have the grace to extend towards them that will cover over our differences 
and maintain unity. I'll have more to say about that next week. This uh, quickly spiralled into a much bigger message than I was going to be able to cover in one week, so I'll have to split it into two and potentially even three. But uh, I'll have more to say about next week about how we can differ with each other and still maintain unity because I might remind you that one of the reasons Jesus went to the cross is that we might be one as brothers and sisters. Now I'm going to focus firstly on whether Christians and churches should obey government mandates to shut the doors and not gather face to face. That's what I was working on in my response to my friend, so I'll continue on in that vein. The first thing we need to do is establish what constitutes a local church. My understanding is that a local church is a community of believers and which sometimes includes non-believers or unbelievers who are there for other purposes, but generally a community of believers that gathers together regularly for fellowship, for encouragement, for correction even, to worship together, to hear the word of God expounded, and to partake of communion and to celebrate baptisms together. Now some of these things are difficult or even impossible to do when we're not gathered together, when we're meeting by Zoom. Okay, let me see if I can pick up where we got up, got, uh, where I dropped out. So some of these things are difficult or impossible to do when we're not gathered together. Does that mean Christians or church leaders who keep the doors closed in obedience to the government are in sin? Does that mean that Christians who don't gather for uh, whatever reason are in sin? And it's possibly it is. It does mean that. But there's a few questions we probably should ask before we arrive at that conclusion. The most important question, I think, is why are they not meeting? Is it because there's sickness, personal sickness or sickness run, running through the church? Is it because they're away on holidays? Or do they have to work on the only day that their church would normally meet? Or more seriously, is it because these Christians don't want to gather? If that's the case, that may well be sin. Next question is, how frequently are we supposed to gather as a church? And that's not an easy question to answer. Most churches traditionally have gathered weekly, usually on a Sunday morning for their main worship service. But where is a weekly Sunday morning church service commanded in Scripture? I'm not sure I can see it anywhere. And bear in mind, I'm one who is fanatical about the church gathering on a regular basis together. The very early church gathered daily in the temple courts. They devoted themselves, it tells us in Acts chapter 2, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. Should that be the pattern for the modern church? Daily church services. John Calvin in the 16th century preached every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 17 preached to the Berean Jews and it tells us that the Bereans were more noble than the others because they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That implies daily meetings. And if that's the case, that makes our weekly church meetings seem a bit uh, lack of commitment from us, doesn't it? So where does our pattern of weekly gatherings come from? It's not laid out like the 11th commandment, thou shalt have church on Sunday morning. The Sunday pattern, as I'm sure you all realise, began after the resurrection. Although 
Interestingly, I can't see that it was commanded anywhere. Now, some might think the church gathered weekly to share communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for example, but that might be reading too much into the text because it doesn't actually tell us either the day of the week or the frequency of their meeting. Instead, it merely says when you come together as a church and as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Is that daily, weekly, monthly, once a year? The text doesn't tell us. And that's why some churches feel the liberty to, in Christ to do communion only once a month or once a year. And based on scripture, who are we to condemn them? Weekly gatherings may be implied in the New Testament, but it doesn't seem to be commanded anywhere. Maybe we should look to the Old Testament for happen. The Jews were told in the Ten Commandments to set aside one day of the week. That's from sundown Friday to sundown on a Saturday as a Sabbath to the Lord, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. But that Sabbath didn't take the form of a public gathering for a scripture reading, three or four songs of worship, some prayers and a sermon preached from the pulpit like most churches do today. It's interesting also that they were commanded to gather only once a year in Jerusalem. So where does that pattern of weekly gathering come from? Now, people often bring up Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 when they're talking about the need to gather, and I've talked about this many times myself. That tells us, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's notable that this passage too actually doesn't command meeting together. In context, it's both a warning and an encouragement to not neglect the meeting together. So that actually addresses matters of the heart, not matters of the law. To meet together should be the most natural thing in the world for Christians. After all, other Christians are the people who we share the most in common. A person who claims to be a Christian and doesn't want to gather together with other Christians is an anomaly. It's abnormal. And it brings into question just how genuine their faith is. Now, that's the clearest passage I know of about meeting together as Christians, and it's not a command. And it doesn't tell the context of that meeting together. It doesn't tell us it's actually supposed to be a Sunday morning church service. It doesn't tell us the frequency. The New Testament seems to assume, I think, the gathering of the saints. Like, and Well, it's, it definitely does assume the gathering of the saints, but I can't see anywhere that's commanded. If anyone can show me, I'm happy to be corrected. But I'm struggling to find it myself. Rather, as I said, the need and the desire to meet together is a matter of the heart. It reveals something about their spiritual state. And before I go on to what is clear and commanded in Scripture, let's define the function and the authority of governments. I'll be quoting a bit from R.C. Sproul today because, as is typical for the man, he explains complex matters simply, clearly, and I think accurately. And R.C. Sproul points out that early in church history, St. Augustine made the observation that government is a necessary evil. For in this world... Among fallen human creatures, you will never find a morally perfect government. All governments, no matter what structure they manifest, 
a representative of fallen humanity because governments are made up of sinful people. Now, that's worth keeping in the back of your mind. If you expect any government this side of the second coming of Christ to operate without flaw or fault or corruption or double standards, you're just simply naive. Sproul goes on to say that human government has at least three functions. Firstly, to protect people from evil and to preserve and maintain human life. Now, you may well disagree with the methods our government is using during the COVID crisis. You may even think there's something more sinister beneath it all. But there should be no doubt that at least one of the goals is to protect and preserve human life. Secondly, Sproul says, government is to protect human property by making and enforcing. Governments are to protect human property by making and enforcing laws about ownership, theft, damage and destruction. Thirdly, governments are to regulate agreements to uphold contracts to ensure just weights and balances, in a nutshell, to protect people from fraud. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with the laws or not, whether you agree with the methods engaged, all governments place restrictions on our freedoms. Even the best and the most benign governments restrict our freedoms. That is unavoidable if we're to live in a safe society. The alternative is anarchy, where ultimately you have no freedom because your whole life is lived in fear, fear of loss of your property, fear of harm to your loved ones, fear of losing your own life. And that sort of society sounds a bit like the sad conclusion to the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So how are we Christians to relate to the government? I might warn you that there are some pretty clear commands about how we're to relate to our leaders, whether they're elected or appointed over us, and in contrast to the less clear commands about how regularly we're supposed to meet. The first one, but it's not the only one, is in Romans 13. No doubt if you've been uh, struggling with this issue of government authority over churches, you've already read Romans 13, or you've heard it, you've heard people talking about it. Before you object that this passage is speaking of good governments, Paul was writing to Christians who were subject to one of the most corrupt, the most brutal, and the most oppressive governments in history. This was a government that made laws based on the whim of Caesar, or determined the fate of their citizens by interpreting chicken bones. For all its faults, our governments are nothing like the ancient Romans. So Romans 13 tells us in verse 1 that every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that, had, that exist have been instituted by God. Does that mean that only good governments are instituted by God, only the ones we like? Does that mean if you're a liberal voter that Labor governments are not instituted by God or vice versa? Clearly not. Remember, even Jesus said to Pilate, the brutal and the corrupt and the cowardly Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. 
Yeah. All good. Still hear me okay? Thought we had a problem with our end. Jesus said to, to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Even corrupt governments are instituted by God, according to the Bible. Our problem is that we don't know how God is using these corrupt governments to fulfil his purposes. Paul goes on in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. At least part of the reason why we're told to obey our governments is because disobedience to our government is actually disobedience to God. There's a chain of command here. God, as the supreme authority, has delegated some of that authority to our governments to rule over us. Paul goes on in verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in, sub in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So R.C. Sproul actually says there is a fundamental obligation on Christians to be a model of civil obedience. But Paul is pretty clear about all this. Refusal to submit to the government runs the very real risk that we will face God's wrath. Not just the wrath of the police courts, a police force in the courts, but God's wrath. I wonder how many Christians consider that when they're thinking about civil disobedience. This is a serious matter. If we're going to engage in civil disobedience, we better make sure it is warranted before God. We better make sure that we're not just trying to put God's stamp of approval on our own carnal desires. I tell you, it's not always an easy judgment to make. Does it mean that Christians are never to engage in civil disobedience? Does it mean we're never to protest in the streets? That we must always wear a mask in the supermarket? That we are never to gather again until the government says, yes, we can? I'll deal with some more of that in the next message. We won't have time to get into some of that. But what are we to do when the government's demands are not clearly forbidden in Scripture? but we don't like or we don't agree with it. The answer from Paul on the Facebook seemed to be fairly simple. We are to comply. And not just comply grudgingly, but to comply willingly. But when we submit to a legitimate request of the government, we're really submitting to God as the ultimate authority. The question is, of course, whether the law is legitimate. But the fact that we don't like a law is a pretty flimsy excuse the disobedience. There needs to be something much more solid behind it. As one author puts it, the ultimate test comes on judgment day. If you're tempted to disobey, ask yourself this very serious question. Do you believe God will vindicate you and your disobedience by saying on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant, you were correct to overlook what I said in Romans 13 because the government was asking you to sin. 
Those are high stakes. That should make you very nervous. Consider this. As a function of their duty to protect and preserve life, the government has set speed limits on our roads. But why have they decided that 40 kilometres an hour is the safe speed limit past our local primary school? Why not 20? Why not 60? Why not 39? Why not 41? Because a line has to be drawn in the sand somewhere. And the advice of the so-called experts is that 40 is where that line should be. Now, if I refuse to believe that that's a valid speed limit, or if I reject it because no one's conducted a survey and a study on that particular street, or because I just don't like the limits on my freedom, should I then be permitted to do 100 kilometres an hour past that school? I would hope that even the most libertarian amongst us would condemn my law breaking. Because as I said earlier, if we decide to obey only the laws we like, there would be anarchy, not freedom. In the matter of COVID restrictions, a line has to be drawn in the sand somewhere too. If the government failed to act in some way, there'd be outcry over the uncontrolled spread of the disease, the overwhelming of hospitals and the overwhelming of morgues and cemeteries. Is there a way to please all the citizens? Of course there isn't. We all have different beliefs and opinions about this. The government, to use an Australian term, is on a hiding to nothing, regardless of what decision they make. So how has the church historically responded to government mandates that they don't necessarily like? How has the church responded historically when the government has told them to close their doors? We know the church has met in almost any circumstance and in the face of great opposition and persecution. While it's true that the church gathers under almost any circumstance, it's not true that the church or even the people of God prior to Christ, for that matter, have always gathered regardless of the circumstance. There have been a number of times that fiercely devout Christians and leaders in submission to the instructions of the government have chosen to not gather. Times of war, for example, imprisonment is forced on them, persecution, and yes, even sickness at times that spring to mind. There's one specific instance of restriction on the church during the 17th century English Reformation that was imposed for the purpose of public health, health that's somewhat, somewhat parallel to our time. Now, the Puritans of the year in England were not noted for rolling over in the face of institutional persecution. They would fight back against anything that they believed trampled on the church. And they would resist it to arrest, imprisonment and even death. But renowned 17th century Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote in a couple of years after the Great Plague of London when the bubonic plague swept through London, he said, if the magistrate for the greater good as the common safety forbid church assemblies in the time of pestilence, assault of enemies or fire or the like necessity, it is a duty to obey him. The magistrate, to use Baxter's term, meaning government, has a responsibility to govern for the greater good. The duty of care for the health and the safety of every member of society, not just Christians. And Baxter's counsel is that there are times when the church 
should submit to the government and keep their doors closed. Richard Baxter himself was not one to submit meekly to the authorities. In fact, he did several stints in prison for his Christian convictions, for refusing to obey the government in church matters. And, and prison terms in those days were not comfortable, pleasant prison experiences with TVs in your room and things like that. They were locked up in a cold, dank dungeon and fed only when the, the jailers felt like feeding them. But Baxter did several stints in prison for refusing to submit to the government. But in this, he felt it wise to obey and to submit with certain qualifications that I'll get to shortly. So the boundary between the church and the state, not always clearly defined in spite of what a lot of people would think. There are plenty of occasions when we expect the authorities to impose upon the church in some way. If a pastor commits a crime, we expect him to face the consequences, which may mean a jail term, which may mean that church is without their pastor, which may mean it may not be able to meet for a period of time. Under normal circumstances, baptism, for example, and the preaching of the word and the Lord's Supper are outside of the jurisdiction of the authorities. But what if there is a severe drought that leads to critical water shortages? What if the government then asks churches to su suspend full immersion baptisms. Is that a legitimate occasion for the church to submit to the state in a church matter that the state has no authority? Some people would say no out of hand. But if we can conceive of a situation like that where it would be the most prudent, the most loving thing a church can do, and it would be the best witness for the community, then we can see that there are sometimes, in some circumstances, that the state can dictate to the church. It can and should the state demand that the church suspend meeting for the safety of their members during a wartime bombing raid. Probably they should. Or if the church should catch fire in the middle of a church service, do the government-employed firefighters have the authority to tell all the congregants to get out? And do they have the authority to ban all meetings in that building until safety checks and repairs have been conducted? I think they probably do. But isn't that imposing government authority on the church? Sure, you can see that the separation between areas of authority for the government and the church are not always so clear-cut. And that's Richard Baxter's point. There are times that the magistrate can and should ban public gatherings for the safety of greater society. He goes on to ask, modernising his language a little bit, may we stop holding church meetings on the Lord's Day if the magistrate forbids them? And his answer is one thing to forbid them for a time for some special cause as infection by pestilence, fire or war, etc. And it's another to forbid them explicitly or with contempt. Now, Baxter uses the words of Jesus in Mark 2.23 and onwards to point out that there are times when the safety and preservation of life must take precedence over our duty to worship and to worship together. We don't have time to go into the rest of Baxter's reasoning today, but in essence, if we're forbidden to meet for a time, 
then we may obey man without disobeying God. But if we're forbidden to meet forever, then that's a whole different ballgame. The key is whether the government is indicating that there will come a time when the churches can reopen and whether it intends to close all churches everywhere for all time. That doesn't yet seem to me to be the case. There's no indication from any state government in Australia that these shutdowns are meant to be permanent. That's the realm of conspiracy theories, and some of you may have noticed I don't have much time for conspiracy theories. You don't need to come up with a conspiracy theory to account for human sinful nature. Rather, the purpose of the lockdowns is precisely so that the churches can reopen, and not just the churches, but all of society. Whether you believe the government is managing this situation poorly, being too heavy-handed, whether you think they're hypocritical in their actions or allowing double standards for football teams compared to churches is not the point. The point is that governments have the right and even the obligation in some circumstances to impose limitations on the freedom of the citizens. For some circumstances and for a certain period of time. And the duty of Christians, if Paul is saying correctly, would seem to be to obey the government willingly Grudging obedience dishonours the one who is at the top of the chain of command. Paul has made that pretty clear. But even if we do decide that the government is so oppressive that it justifies resistance in principle, resistance may not be wise in practice. Are we likely to cause more harm than good by civil disobedience? are we likely to harm our witness to the community by civil disobedience? Will public protests provoke an even harsher response from the authorities? Will your rebellion win over your enemies or alienate your friends? These are big questions to answer. As Baxter Council, you may be wiser to save your ammunition for another fight, a more important battle. Whatever you decide to do, insisting that all Christians follow the same course of action as you do, is not Christian liberty, it's legalism. As one author has written, Romans 13 doesn't say that every person who has carefully weighed the laws in balance and found them to be entirely to their own satisfaction be subject to the, be subject to the governing authorities. Implicit in the idea of obedience is obeying even when you're not sure that the policies are wise. Indeed, even when you're pretty sure they are unwise. So I hope you can see there are no easy answers here, which is why we need to tread with caution in this matter and why we need to extend grace to those who differ from us. And sadly, grace is one of the things that seems to have been greatly lacking in the last 18 months among Christians. And while we're on the subject of church services being suspended, I'm reminded that the Jews were commanded to worship only in the Temple of Jerusalem every year. Did you realise that for 70 long years, the Jews didn't attend the temple once for their worship? They couldn't, because God himself had sent them into exile at the hands of the Babylonians taking away any possibility 
of obedience to his clear command. And it was a very clear command. You are to gather once a year in the temple of Jerusalem. And yet God himself did what would appear to be a contradiction of his own command, take away that privilege and that that, um, command. He did it as a punishment for the idolatries that they've been committing for centuries. I wonder whether God might be doing something in this age. Plenty of Christians already seem to think so. If so, we run the risk fighting against God in doing in that of what God is doing in our time and in our nation. That's not a prospect to take lightly, in my opinion. I'm running out of time. This has probably gone far too long already, but much of what I still want to say about submitting to the government, about the police response to the protests, about when it's appropriate for civil disobedience and how to respond to Christians who disagree with us, we'll have to wait until next week. Romans 13, such a clear command that we dare not ignore it unless we have very strong biblical reasons. I might remind you that Romans 13 isn't the only place that this is laid out that clearly. Peter says the same thing, and both of them are only expounding what Jesus says. If we're to resist the government in current issues or any that may arise in the future, we need to tread very carefully. And sloganeering doesn't help us. We must ensure that our civil disobedience is truly what God requires of us in this situation. And it's not just an attempt, as I said before, to put God's stamp of approval on our own carnal desires and interests and frustrations. We humans are already far too prone to do that. But there's a number of legal channels that we can use to express our displeasure. And I wonder... Just how many of the protesters, for example, how many Christians have availed themselves of those legal channels rather than going straight to civil disobedience? I'll talk a bit more about those legal channels next week. None of this is to say that there will never be a situation where we shouldn't resist the authorities. But we need to somehow determine when the government is targeting the church with the intention of shutting down the gospel And when the church is merely caught in the crossfire, along with supermarkets and restaurants and Lions clubs and football teams, not always easy to determine. But from my perspective, none of the government's mandates so far has specifically targeted the church. We've seen the fall into a similar category as all those other cinemas and various others. I might be very wrong in my conclusion. Much smarter men than me would disagree, and I know there are some very famous pastors that take the opposite tack to what I've done. But I can only draw the conclusions I see most clearly laid out in Scripture. Bear in mind that, as I said, there's more to be said on this matter next week, and I may yet be convinced otherwise. So I offer my thoughts to you with humility. I welcome your grace towards me as a brother in Christ whose opinion may differ from yours. At the end of the day, I'm convinced that we all have to act according to conscience and we have to bear with the brother who differs. You may think the conspiracy theories are nonsense or you may think it's obvious that there's a hidden agenda behind all this. We're not arguing about the gospel here. We're not arguing about the truly important stuff. 
None of us are a heretic because we believe one way or the other. Most, more importantly, and most importantly, I think, the cause of Christ is in no way hindered by politics. It's in no way hindered by persecution. It's in no way hindered by social agendas. It's in no way hindered by COVID lockdowns, nor by any other cause. To paraphrase Jesus a little bit, I will build my church. You remember him saying that? I will build my church. And if even the gates of hell will not prevail against it, how much less will earthly governments prevail against it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's been a lot more heat than light in the last 18 months about these lockdowns, about government responses, about police uh, attacking demonstrators, about conspiracy theories, about whether COVID is real or whether it's as serious as what they say it is. There's so much heat and so little light, Lord. Father, would you by your Holy Spirit bring light to each of our hearts so that we can see what you say should be a response for us. Lord, I pray that each one of us, regardless of, of what we think about things in these difficult times, would have our hearts fixed on Jesus Christ, the one who will build his church through everything, through every challenge, through every difficulty, through every opposition, through every lockdown, through every crisis, he will build his church line. Would you help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on that? Father, we ask for those, those of us, which no doubt, Lord, is all of us, who have sinned by, by harming our brother or sister in Christ, by dismissing their beliefs or opinions, by looking down our nose at them, by insisting that we're right and they're wrong, whatever the cause may, the reason may be, Lord. We repent of that. We come before you humbly, Lord, and say, we don't know what's going on, Lord. We admit we don't know what's going on. We admit our arrogance in assuming that we do. And we ask, Lord, that the blood of Jesus Christ will wash away all that, the bitterness, the frustration, the anger, the alienation from brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, would you wash it all away by your blood? And Lord, would you help us to see that these things at the end of the day, as difficult as they are, as important as they seem, are nothing in the light of eternity, are nothing in the light of the security we have in your hands, Jesus Christ that neither heaven nor hell, angels nor demons, not even governments can take away what you have done for us, Lord, by changing our hearts, granting us new spirits, reconciling us to the Father and securing, securing our eternal future. Lord, as we sang the songs of worship this morning that refocused our hearts on Jesus Christ, on his beauty, his glory, his majesty. Lord, we pray that you'll keep our hearts focused on him.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.